uh, it, it sounded like uh, they, they wanted me to talk on historical evidence for the Christian faith. So right away I started gearing towards that. Then I got a phone message from the secretary saying, asking if I would speak on evidence for God's existence. So what I did was I'm, I'm prepared to speak on both. And uh, I'd like to spend 40 or 50 minutes talking on evidence for God's existence and then going to the other two handouts and just giving a brief overview of the reliability of the New Testament but then <coughs> dealing with evidence for Christ's resurrection and deity. So pretty much if there's no objections, that's the, that's the course I'll, I'll, I'll kind of take. Um, I don't know how, the, how this was promoted if it was... If they just said I was going to speak on evidence for God's existence, period, uh, I can go that route if that's what people would rather have. Um, I'd kind of like to bring both aspects into it, if that's okay. Good, good, there. Well, that's good. Yeah. Oh, hopefully the Holy Spirit's giving me some guidance here. Okay, good. Well, then we'll talk about evidence for God's existence. Um... By the way, the, the blue book is, is totally devoted to this topic, evidence for God's existence. Um, it's a very, you know, it's a very wide, exhaustive subject. Uh, uh, Christian history is, is rich in, in the dialogue on presenting, you know, evidence for God's existence. Uh, the the pink book, on the other hand, only has one chapter that deals with it. Um, but that one chapter is my argumentation for God's existence, the cumulative case for God, and that's what we'll close this, uh, this message with today. The first what I want to do is talk about some traditional arguments for God's existence, some arguments that have been used throughout the, the ages. Not just Christians have argued for the existence of a personal God. Some of the Greek philosophers did. Uh, also, uh, some of the Muslim philosophers uh, argued for the existence of a personal God. Um, so what I want us to do now is just look at some of these traditional arguments for God's existence. I personally don't put all my eggs in one basket. Some, some philosophers do. They'll take one argument and they'll try to prove God's existence just on that alone. Some of them do a pretty good job on that too. But what I like to do is use several of them and build a cumulative case. <coughs> So that uh, basically uh, I use uh, Christianity, the belief in the Christian God as a hypothesis, an explanation of certain several aspects of human experience, and I say that it's a superior explanation to that of all other uh, uh, explanations. And um, I think it's a um, little, little easier for people to understand going that route rather than following uh, strict... Uh, uh, rational premises. The first traditional argument for God's existence I like to talk about is called the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument. Uh, there's basically three different types of cosmological arguments, so I'm only going to touch on one of them. Um, but there's a lot you can do. With it. So the thing that they all have in common is, is the, the cosmos aspect. Basically, we're arguing that Either the universe itself needs a cause or some, some element in the universe needs a cause and ultimately we have to arrive at a first cause, the uncaused cause. Uh, the type of cosmological argument I'd like to talk about is called the Kalam cosmological argument. And uh, this was... Uh, 
actually originated with uh, Islamic philosophers, um, and they uh, they basically they argued that time needs a beginning, and they used uh, mathematical principles to prove that the universe had to have a beginning, and all. Uh, Today, uh, some of the St. Bonaventure, back during the time of Thomas Aquinas, he used this argumentation as well. Uh, uh, today, probably the two leading Christian proponents of the Kalam cosmological argument are J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig. Um, uh, brilliant thinkers today. Uh, Moreland's out of uh, uh, Talbot uh, Theological Seminary in Southern California. And William Lane Craig now is doing some teaching there, but he actually lives in Georgia. And he, he lectures and debates for Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, but they're brilliant thinkers. It's a real good argument. The reason why I bring this one up is because, it, number one, when I deal with the cosmological, cosmological argument, number one is that it's a good, solid argument, and number two, not only is it a good, solid argument, but it's, it's uh, probably the easiest to understand of the three cosmological-type arguments, okay? Uh, first premise just basically says, uh, whatever has a beginning, by that I mean an act, absolute beginning, so that before that beginning, that thing did not exist. Whatever has a beginning needs a cause. Number two, the universe <coughs> had a beginning. Therefore, number three, The universe had a cause. Okay? Whatever has a beginning needs a cause. The universe had a beginning. The, therefore, the universe had a cause. Um, how do we defend that first premise? Whatever has a beginning needs a cause. We're talking about an absolute beginning. Okay? Well, basically... It's impossible to cause your own existence, okay? Because in order for something to be self-caused, in order for something to cause its own existence, you would have to pre-exist your own existence in order to bring your own existence about. That's ludicrous. You can't pre-exist your own existence. Uh, another way of looking at it would be, uh, you know, the question comes up, uh, can nothing cause something, okay? Um, you know, whatever had, has a beginning needs a cause. Um, uh, the ancient philosophers, Aquinas himself, put it this way, uh, non-being cannot cause being. And uh, so from nothing, nothing comes. Uh, basically, you know, just think about nothing for a minute here. Just nothing is nothing. Okay? So since nothing is nothing, by definition, nothing can do nothing. And if nothing can do nothing, then nothing can cause nothing. <coughs> you see what I'm getting at? For something to have the power of causality, it has to be something. Okay? Um, the way Aquinas would say, I'll probably throw people for a loop here, because Aquinas was sometimes uh, very hard to understand, but basically something must actually exist 
something must have actuality before it has any potentiality. Um, if something doesn't actually exist, then it doesn't have any potential at all. So just to have the potential, the ability to cause something, you have to actually exist. And nothing has no actuality, so nothing has no potentiality. Okay? So just remember, nothing is nothing, not, therefore nothing can do nothing, therefore nothing can cause nothing. So whatever has an absolute beginning must have a cause. Something else must have caused it to come into existence. That's premise number one. Um, the only people who will reject that usually, and this is really weird, the only people who reject that usually, it takes about 12 years of sophisticated training, <coughs> usually right now, today, in quantum physics before somebody will reject that kind of problem. In other words, it, it's so illogical, um, you really have to be indoctrinated before you reject that. But it, it, there's some guys that are actually arguing that something can pop into existence without a cause, and uh, that's a, a really ludicrous position to take, very, very weak. Um, whatever the case, uh, the second premise is, is more questionable. The universe had a beginning. How do we know that the universe had a beginning? There's some scientific evidence, strong scientific evidence from modern science for the beginning of the universe. And there's some philosophical evidence, which I think is even stronger, but it's often harder to follow. So uh, let's look at the scientific evidence first. Um, from science, there are two things that clearly point to the beginning of the universe. There's what's called the second law of thermodynamics. By the way, scientific laws hold much more weight. There's much more evidence for them than scientific theories or scientific models. So the, the laws are things that uh, are recognized pretty much on a universal scale. The second law of thermodynamics, the first law of thermodynamics tells us that the amount of energy in the universe remains constant. There's no new energy popping into existence. There's no energy going out of existence, okay? I mean, the amount of energy in the universe remains constant, but the amount of usable energy is, is winding down, okay? Um, so though the amount of energy remains the same, it changes forms. And as it changes forms, uh, it is becoming less and less usable. Okay? Uh, kind of an application of the second law, if you will. Uh, what that tells us is that as, eventually, as we move forward in time, the amount of usable energy in the universe is, is running down. Which means if you go backwards in time, you would eventually reach a point where all the energy in the universe was usable. And that would mark the start of the universe. But as we go forward in time, eventually the universe is going to die. It's, it's going to wind down. If it's, if it's going to wind down, it had to be wound up. Okay? And so this argues for the beginning of the universe. And again, whatever has a beginning needs a cause. Um, there's some confirmation for this in what is called the Big Bang Model. I believe a scientist named Hubble back in 19, about the 1920s, 
he realized that the universe was expanding in all different directions at a, at a constant rate. Uh, and uh, basically, it, it uh, is very similar to what we would find uh, resulting from an explosion. Okay? Um, when things explode, you know, they go in all different directions. They move uh, away in all different directions. And so what uh, scientists have done is they said, well, if you go forward in time, the universe expands. If we go backwards in time, eventually the universe, you know, the universe would get more and more dense till eventually we would reach a point, the universe would be so dense it would be a point of infinite density. You know, in their scientific journals, they'll say the Big Bang teaches that you go back far enough in time, the universe was a point of infinite density, or the universe was a point in dimensionless space. Okay? That sounds really neat, but what does it mean? Well, infinite density means that something is dense or small without limit. So no matter how small something is, it can get smaller unless it is small without limit, which would mean it's not even there anymore. See what I'm getting at? It's the same with a point in dimensionless space. If a point doesn't take up any dimensions in space, it takes up no space. It's nowhere. It's not there. You see, scientists don't want to say, well, what the Big Bang teaches is that if you go back far enough in time, the universe didn't exist. That sounds too much like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So they come up with all this fancy mumbo-jumbo. Now some scientists are a little more honest than others. Even the agnostic Robert Jastrow, who wrote the book God and the Astronomers. Uh, he's, uh, he works for NASA, he's the, the head of uh, the Goddard Institute of Space Studies, one of the world's leading uh, uh, astronomers, but he he ended that book, God and the Astronomers, even though he doesn't believe in God's existence. In the final paragraph of that book, he talked about how scientists for several hundred years now have been climbing up the mountain of knowledge. And now finally they've reached up their hand and they got to the highest ledge and they pulled themselves up and they were surprised to see a, a band of theologians waiting, <laughs> waiting for them for the past cent couple centuries. Uh, and what, what he's basically saying is that the scientists with all their high and mighty evolutionary theories and atheistic theories, now all of a sudden they run smack into the Big Bang model and modern science um, provides strong evidence for the beginning of the universe. And let me say this. Um, True knowledge, true science, true philosophy, I believe, will always lead you into the throne room, or at least towards the throne room of God. <coughs> most scientists, like most people, and most scientists are people, uh, but most scientists, like most people, do not want to hang out in God's throne room. Because, you know, I mean, during God's throne room, you've got to bow before God. So, uh, Basically, I've been arguing since the mid-1980s that um, um, modern science is going to begin to, instead of look for truth and look for evidence, if they don't like where it's pointing, they're going to 
basically start going in the other direction. And uh, in other words, if reason, if, the, if, if rational evidences lead you towards God, then I think scientists are going to start drawing irrational conclusions. Basically, I believe modern science is going to go new age. And uh, it's going to be more like, uh, have more in common with Hinduism. Uh, C.S. Lewis was, was saying this back in the 19... I, wasn't, I didn't say anything profound in the 80s. C.S. Lewis was saying this in the 1940s, that uh, science has a lot in common with uh, superstition, uh, with magic, because both attempt not just to find out about nature, but there are attempts of some human beings, uh, an elite few, to dominate and control nature. And um, so uh, Lewis was predicting that science would become more like magic in the last days. It would be uh, a means to control the masses. And uh, if you want to control nature, man is part of nature, and eventually science is going to be used to control man as well. So, uh, and, and uh, by the way, in quantum physics, that's... Uh, science that deals with the physical universe uh, below the atomic level, um, there are some very, very crazy speculative theories that are going on that I don't even think deserve the name science. And, uh, and so very often we'll hear, well, scientists have proved this, scientists have proved, hey, you have some crazy theories in quantum physics that have not been proved, they've been proposed, and if the guy's got uh, a big enough name like Stephen Hawking, uh, he might actually get enough people to, to jump on that bandwagon. Now, keep in mind what the Bible says in Romans 1, 8. In fact, let me read it to you here. Romans 1, 18 to 22. Um, this did not take God by surprise. He knew this kind of thing was going to happen. It's been happening through all mankind. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 22. Paul says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You see, the, the problem isn't that the atheist doesn't know God exists. The problem is he suppresses that truth. You can't suppress a truth that you don't already know. Okay? And so deep down inside, the atheist chooses to suppress that truth. Now, now keep in mind, Who's the easiest person to lie to? Yourself. You know, whenever whenever Phil Fernandez commits a sin, that sin is always accompanied by a built-in excuse that I accept no matter how ludicrous it is. An excuse for why I blew my top. There was a spiritual reason why I blew my top and, and blah, blah, blah. The hard thing is to convince anybody else. Okay? So uh, so I'm not saying that an atheist would fail a lie detector test. I think they would actually pass it. But uh, deep down inside, they are suppressing that truth. Um, verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. So God has displayed his existence to us within us, in our, within our hearts. I think each and every one of us has a, a thirst for God that only God uh, can, can quench. Um, it's manifest uh, knowledge of what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So, 
not only has God revealed His existence to us within within our conscience, but also God has revealed His existence to us in the creation. We do not see the invisible Creator, but we see the visible work of His hands. Okay, only a fool would argue that there there was no intelligent human being or beings that put together this uh, this uh, podium or music stand, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Um, to look at, at God's artwork, a beautiful sunset, and to say that it got here through random processes, it got here by accident, is, uh, is really ludicrous. I mean, um, it, it takes intelligence to try to duplicate a beautiful sunset and to have a beautiful painting of that. Uh, what makes us think that the, that the real thing actually got, got here by chance? Um, but it says that they're clearly seen uh, evidence of God's existence clearly seen through creation so that man's without ex- uh, excuse literally there it's uh, without uh, a- a- apologia without an apologetic in other words apologetic is the defense of the Christian faith God says that the, the unbeliever really has no rational defense of his beliefs now believe me guys make their living nowadays um just coming up with complex argumentation to supposedly disprove God's existence. And it, believe me, it can sound real convincing, but when everything's said and done, there's some fallacy there. There's something where the argument just doesn't hold. It's, it's not always easy to see, but in the end, uh, the, uh, the God who has infinite intelligence, the one true God, tells us that there really is no rational defense when everything is said and done. It's kind of a smokescreen type argument that they use. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So Carl Sagan, while he was uh, still alive, uh, you know, he could he could call himself wise, and most of the people on earth would have considered him a very wise man, but he basically made a fool out of himself. By the way, the Bible does not consider a fool uh, somebody who has a low IQ. They do not consider that a fool. The Bible considers a fool somebody who knows better but morally chooses, makes, makes the wrong decision. And obviously the worst decision you can make is to ignore the existence uh, of your Creator who alone can redeem you. Um, so, uh, you know, these guys profess to be wise but become fools. The Big Bang model and the second law of thermodynamics provide real good evidence that the universe had a beginning. Um, I don't really have too much time to get into the philosophical arguments. I'll just I'll just leave you with this. Uh, in order for the universe to be eternal, okay, there would have to be an unlimited, an infinite number of moments to reach the present moment we call now. Okay? However, an ancient Greek philosopher named Zeno proved that it's impossible to traverse an actual infinite set. It's impossible to get through an actual infinite set, no matter how many... If you assume, just for sake of argument, that between point A, this stool, and point B, that table, if we assume that there's an, an actual infinite number of points, okay, 
in between point A and point B, um, which there, there isn't, by the way, but if we assume that there is, then we could never move from point A to point B. Because before you can get from point A to point B, you'd have to get halfway. And before you can get to the halfway point, you'd have to get halfway to the halfway point. Before you can get there, you'd have to get halfway to the halfway point. And movement would ever never actually start. Now, Zeno drew some, some really weird conclusions from that um, because he was out to lunch. He didn't understand the difference. He didn't understand the difference between the actual realm and the potential realm. Uh, Aristotle refuted him, and later on Aquinas, uh, who was uh, followed Aristotle's Aristotle's line of reasoning. But basically, what I'm getting at is, no matter how many moments you cross, if there's an infinite number of moments, um, you're no closer to the final destination. So if there, if the universe does not have did not have a beginning. There's an infinite number of moments in the past before you reach the present moment now. Well, guess what? We would, have, we would have never reached the present moment now. Because we reached the present moment now, that tells us there had to be a first moment. By the way, this doesn't destroy in any way the eternality of God. Um, God created time. When God created whatever it was, that the first thing that He created, um, that's when time began. That's when you can start a clock. Um, God exists, basically exists outside of time, but He can act in time. Okay? And uh, there's some Christian philosophers that are trying to reject that, and I don't know why. I agree with Augustine and Aquinas and the Christian Church for the past 2,000 years, and that if these guys want to put God in everlasting time, Zeno's paradoxes will resurface, and uh, um, and basically that you, you wouldn't be able to reach the moment of creation, let alone the moment of uh, 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 the moment we call now. Augustine argued basically that there was no time before time began, is the way he put it, and uh, God created time when He created the first changing beings, and God alone is unchanging. Um, and so basically, because we reached the moment now, we know there had to be a first moment. And uh, so the universe is not eternal. It had to have a beginning. We already argue whatever has a beginning needs a cause. Therefore, the universe had to have a cause. Now, well, what if we say, well, if the universe has a cause, maybe the cause of the universe has a cause. And maybe that cause has a cause, and it goes back infinitely. You can't, because in order to get to the present cause you'd have to start at a first cause. So there's no escaping this. You've got to have a first cause, a first ultimate cause of the universe. Okay? Um, the thing is that that first cause seems to be real abstract. How do we know it's the personal God of the Bible? Well, that's why I use a cumulative case argument. Because you can go from the cosmological argument which argues for the, the, uh, 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 an eternal first cause of the universe, you can then go to the moral argument and then what is called the teleological argument or the design argument and show that this first cause uh, must be uh, a moral being and must be an intelligent being. Okay? Um, how do we know that the first cause of the universe must be a moral being? Well, 
even the atheist who often denies, but if you get God, you get moral laws with him. Okay? If you don't have moral laws, uh, it basically comes in a package. If God exists, moral laws are there. If moral laws exist, God's got to exist. That's why most atheists deny moral values. Some people reject God because they don't want moral standards. Other people reject moral standards because they don't want God. Okay? So it's irrelevant which direction they're going in. It's a package deal. If God exists, uh, the personal God of the Bible exists, it's going to be moral values. But basically, the even the atheist who denies the existence of moral laws, it's like Francis Schaeffer said, you can deny Christianity, you still got to live in the Christian universe. Reason being, you don't have any choice. It's the only universe God created. Okay? So, um, uh, you got you can deny God, but you got to live in God's creation. Okay? Um, Francis Schaeffer, the illustration he gave, he was talking with, a, with some students at a dorm in England, and one of the students was a Hindu. And Francis Schaeffer showed him, well, if God is impersonal, if God's an impersonal force, which is what Hinduism teaches, then ultimately there's no distinction between cruelty and non-cruelty. There's no distinction between right and wrong. And so basically there are no moral values. Well, the Hindu, to be consistent with his worldview, admitted, yeah, there's no distinction between cruelty and non-cruelty. Okay? Just at that point, the water began to boil for tea. So one of the other students grabbed the hot boiling water, pulled up a chair next to the Hindu student, stood on the chair, and held the, the, the pot of uh, boiling water over the head of the Hindu student. The Hindu student looked up and asked the inevitable question, you know, what are you doing? And, uh, and the guy responded, there's no distinction between cruelty and non-cruelty. Now, the Hindu couldn't respond to that. There was no way to refute it. He wasn't going to reject his Hinduism. So Francis Schaeffer, in the literary style that he had, said that the, the Hindu student walked out into the dark night, you know, walked off into the, into the darkness, which has as much uh, spiritual uh, connotations as, uh, as uh, just, you know, reporting of what occurred there. Uh, but basically... I, the atheist, you know, if I was debating an atheist today, most likely 99 out of 100 atheists will deny more the existence of moral values, of absolute, universal, unchanging moral values, a standard of moral laws that stand above all men, all women, at all times, all places, okay? They reject that in this room. Then if they walk outside this room, um... Somebody walks up behind him and pops him. Yeah, it pops him in the back of the head. He's gonna he's gonna argue that he was wrong. Okay. Uh, how many times you hear people? There's no such thing as right and wrong. Therefore, you're wrong to tell to try to outlaw abortion. Okay. No such thing as right and wrong. But Christians are always wrong for trying to cram their morality down other people's throats. Well, let me tell you something. I, I don't think of it as me cramming my morality down people's throats. I think it is sticking up for helpless, unborn babies. But the fact of the matter is, I'm being consistent with my worldview when I stand up for the unborn baby's rights because I believe there are moral values. But when a guy says I'm a moral relativist and then he condemns the actions of Adolf Hitler, that's not consistent. Okay, he's denying uh, moral absolutes and all. So... Uh, um, 
You know, abortion, there's no such thing, many abortionists argue, there's no such thing as right and wrong, therefore, let the, the woman decide uh, we should not outlaw abortion, and then an abortion doctor gets killed, which I, I do not back that at all. I'm, I'm pro-life. I don't think we ought to go around starting our own wars or whatever. However, CNN is going to make it look like the whole pro-life movement is a bunch of terrorists, but whatever the case, uh, which is exactly what the Nazis did to the Jews, you, know, you start indoctrinate people in anti-Jewish or anti-Christian propaganda, eventually the masses believe it, and lo and behold, they start confiscating our property, and and the, the, you know we go down to our, to, to another uh, Holocaust. Um, but you know they'll, they'll say it's. It, there's no such thing as right or wrong, therefore abortion should be legal. They shouldn't even use the word should, by the way, if there's no such thing as right and wrong. Um, but then an abortion doctor gets killed and they scream out that that was wrong. So, you know, people can put up a, a, a front, but we are by definition moral beings. We can't escape morality. It's all around us. It's part of us. And, um, you know, everybody recognizes the moral law when, when, when they are wrong. C.S. Lewis pointed that out in, in, in uh, his writings. But not only, and by the way, some, some people might say, well, you know what? I believe, you know, a guy could be an atheist and say, I believe there's a moral law, but I just believe that the individual is the cause of this moral law, the ultimate standard, ultimate moral standard. So each individual decides for himself what is right or what is wrong. There's a problem with that. Because if that's the case, then one individual can't call the actions of another individual wrong. You can't condemn the actions of Adolf Hitler. Guess what? Everybody, even non-Christians, want to condemn the actions of Adolf Hitler. So some people say, okay, it's not the individual, the society is that which invents the moral law. Problem with that, then. If the society is the ultimate court in realms of morality, then one society cannot call the actions of another society wrong. And so America can't call the actions of Nazi Germany wrong. But everybody wants to call the actions of Nazi Germany wrong. So it's got to go higher than society. So now, now everybody's talking world consensus. Whatever that is. I mean, world consensus, you know, it's like... Every time they'd say, well, world consensus is this, they never asked me. So, you know, am I part of the world or what, you know? But, so there's no one, you know, giant voting booth where we really get a world consensus. But even if there was, you know, we could, we could say, well, it, it appears that, you know, thousands of years ago, uh, the world consensus appeared to be that the, uh, the, the world was flat, okay? Uh, world consensus at one time was that a woman was the, the property of her husband. World consensus at one time was that slavery was perfectly acceptable, okay? So, if world consensus was wrong in the past, what makes us think that it's going to be this, this ultimate, infallible standard of what is right today, okay? Um, another thing is, too, is atheists, they might claim world consensus is where we get our moral values from, yet they're always leading marches for world progress, because they think that the way the world was yesterday and the way it is today is wrong, we need to improve it tomorrow. So they're actually fighting against world consensus. Uh, the key there is, the problem is, you just be adding individuals quantitatively 
And that doesn't really explain what the moral law, our moral experience is all about. We need a moral law qualitatively above all mankind. Okay? Um, but basically, but he, he, even uh, even when the atheist tries to improve the world and stuff like that, and say, well, look, just think about the dark ages in the past, you know, and this and that, and blah, 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 and all the problems we had, and we need to improve things. What is the atheist admitting to? Not only is he admitting to a, a standard that is above world consensus, but it's an eternal, unchanging standard so that he can judge the world of yesterday and say it was wrong when it permitted and accepted and tolerated slavery. Okay? So basically, you, you need a moral law that is above all individuals, above all societies, above any world consensus, and is eternal. It's above time. It's eternal and unchanging. Now, the thing is about this moral law is that it's prescriptive. It's not a descriptive law. Uh, a descriptive law is like uh, the law of gravity. If Phil Fernandez walks off the edge of the Grand Canyon, he will go down. I mean, that, it, it, just, it describes the way things are in the world, and then you could draw some conclusions from that and say, well, if that's the way things are, then if we do this, that will happen, whatever. But, the, but natural laws, scientific natural laws, describe the way things are. Prescriptive laws, on the other hand, prescribe the way things ought to be. Okay? When we say that murder is wrong, we are saying that people ought not kill innocent human beings. Okay? So it prescribes the way things ought to be. It prescribes the way people ought to act. Um, the thing about prescriptive laws, they make no sense unless there's a prescriber. And if you don't believe me, try to get a prescription drug without the doctor's signature. Okay? Um, basically, what, I'm, what it amounts to is if, if, there, if we have good evidence that there is a moral law above all individuals, above all societies, above all world consensus, uh, that it's eternal, it's unchanging, then we need a moral lawgiver that is above all individuals, above all societies, above world consensus, that is eternal and unchanging. Now, if that doesn't sound like the God of the Bible, I don't know what does. So basically what I'm saying is the, the first cause uh, of the universe, this eternal uh, first cause of the universe is also an eternal, unchanging moral lawgiver. Okay? The teleological argument is the argument from design. Okay? Uh, it argues that the design and order found in the universe shows that the universe needs an intelligent designer. But by the way, you can look small, you can look big. If you're looking hard enough, you're going to see the face of God. Uh, you can look at a single-celled animal. It has enough genetic information to fill... Yeah, that's highly complex information, enough genetic information to fill an entire library. Just one single-celled animal. Okay? Uh, uh, Michael Bahe wrote this book. He's not even, uh, well, he's, he's Roman Catholic, so he's, he's not an evangelical, but he's a scientist. And basically, what he, he said if evolution is true, the smaller we get, the smaller you get, the smaller you look, 
the less complexity should be there. In other words, the complexity we see uh, uh, the the final stage of things or whatever. But if if if, if Darwinian evolution is correct, the smaller you get, um, uh, things should be less complex. Should be very simple. But what he says, he, you get that as small as we can possibly look. And everything shows intelligent design and, and machinery well put together and for a purpose. Um, strongest teleological argument um, that I have ever uh, heard or experienced is when I looked at the face of my grandson when he was born. Uh, it, I was a Christian already, but if I was an atheist, my atheism would have went right out the window when I looked in, into, into his little face. And... Uh, um, and that's the closest I've ever been with a little baby because I, I adopted my daughter, his mom. And uh, uh, she, she was uh, uh, eight years old at the time. So, uh, but, but when this little baby, uh, Whitaker, Whitaker Chambers was uh, real high up in the Communist Party in America. And, uh, you know, they were trying to take over this country and all. And, and uh, there was more to McCarthyism than what CNN says today. And uh, but whatever the case, um, this guy real high up in the Communist Party in America, he looks, he was watching his, I believe she was seven years old, seven-year-old daughter playing, and all of a sudden it hit him like a ton of bricks. She didn't get here through random processes. She didn't get here by chance. She was designed by an intelligent designer, and they thought, oh no, God does exist. And then his big problem was, he took him, you know, he realized if God exists, my communism goes right out the window. Now, I wish more Christians would know that too, but, uh, but unfortunately we do have some evangelical Christians that consider themselves communist, and if you really understand what communism is, uh, the, the, the two are mutually exclusive, but whatever the case, it took him two years to get the courage to leave the Communist Party. Um, but the argument from design tells us that the universe, uh, whether you look small or whether you look big, the universe needs an intelligent designer. So basically the first cause of the universe, this is what the cumulative case is, by the way. We're adding all these different art arguments together, making one cumulative case uh, for God's existence, and the evidence is overwhelming. Um, uh, that the uh, first eternal cause of the universe must also be a moral and intelligent being, i.e., uh, God is a personal God. He's not, he's not like electricity. He's not the impersonal force of Star Wars or Hinduism or the New Age movement. He's a personal God that loves us, a personal God that has gone way out of his way to redeem us, uh, but a personal God that gives us moral commands. I mean, the God of the New Age movement... If you can look in the mirror and call yourself God, then you can decide what's right and what's wrong. It's a very convenient God. Freud tried to say that Christians invented God by their own wishful thinking. R.C. Sproul pointed out, if we invented God by our own wishful thinking, it would not be the God of the Bible. Because nobody would, uh, would uh, wish for uh, the God of the Bible. Um, you know, the crazy thing is, is he is so just and so awesome, and we are so afraid of him, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But then once you turn things over to him and you get to know him, then perfect love casts out all fear, and 
we bow before His throne, we bow before His feet because we desire to, and that's where our greatest joy is. Uh, but when you first meet Him, uh, I mean, you take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. When you first meet Him uh, and you realize the awesomeness of this God, um, you say what Peter said to Jesus, um, you know, get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Because, I mean, God's holiness just shines the light on your sinfulness and uh, no one would uh, invent... Uh, you know, it's, it, it, no one would invent the God of the Bible. The false gods... It's kind of like God created man in His image and ever since then, uh, man has been creating God in His own image. You know, we always like to invent our own false gods that, lo and behold, look just like us. And uh, um, religious experience, that argument just basically argues that all men sense a need for God um, and it, uh, it's more than a desire, it's an actual need. Even some, even many atheists admit that, 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 that man needs God, but they just don't think he exists. Um, you know, you could die of starvation, you can die of thirst, but water and food does exist. You just might not find it. And so whatever man needs does seem to exist. Uh, therefore, uh, God exists whether man finds him or not. Uh, um, absurdity of life without God. If God does not exist, then life is without meaning. Morality is not ultimately real. There's no life after death, no punishments, no rewards, no ultimate uh, defeat of evil. Basically, if God does not exist... If God does not exist, then it would make no difference a million years from now whether you lived your life like Mother Teresa or if you lived your life like Adolf Hitler. All the people, you will have ceased to exist. All the people you ever influenced will have ceased to exist. It would make no difference whatsoever. Um, life is, is so absurd without God that when a guy's on his deathbed, he doesn't call for the, his, his favorite atheist. He calls for a preacher or a priest. Okay? Um, you know, what kind of meaning would life ultimately have if I said, yeah, work real hard, stand up for what, do you, th what you think is right, um, but uh, whatever you work for, 70 years from now, you're going to die and cease to exist. Okay? See, when, it, when your pastor on Sundays passionately preaches the Word of God, he is being totally consistent with his belief system. Because our God is a God of hope and a God of comfort.